The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. So you might have heard this week about all of this kerfuffle around GST on KiwiSaver and there was a U-turn and a backflip and a backtrack and all sorts of political noise. But what was actually going on? How does it affect us? What does it say about our tax system and how our economy is working? That's this week on When the Facts Change. We're going to unpack what just went on with this GST on KiwiSaver funds management fees kerfuffle. And in doing so, shine a spotlight on a massive hole in our tax system that is screwing the scrum of our economy and actually changing our society in a way that's really unhealthy. So let's start at the start, which was Tuesday afternoon. I'm having a nice quiet afternoon in my parliamentary office and up pops an omnibus tax bill. This is introduced to Parliament on Tuesday at about two o'clock, and normally it's a technical affair, lots of bits and pieces, cleanups, lots of little clauses being changed, and normally it's not very interesting. And there was a press release from the Minister that talked about some nice things around how Uber and Airbnb were going to have to start registering for GST, and how people who got paid for public transport would not have to pay fringe benefits tax anymore, all good stuff but there was something missing. And I had a look through the regulatory impact statement and the full commentary around the bill, which is about 300 pages long, and lo and behold, there was a change in the way that GST was applied to funds management fees. So what, you might say? Well, actually, funds management fees applies to KiwiSaver and to a whole bunch of other funds management that aren't KiwiSavers. And it turns out that the Inland Revenue Department reckon this could add another $225 million in revenues to the government's coffers within a couple of years. And, most importantly, the Financial Markets Authority says that this extra tax would effectively be passed on to savers, and that would mean they wouldn't be able to save so much, to the tune of over $180 billion by the time we get to 2070. So let's just backtrack here. The government made a change, didn't announce it. The IRD and the Financial Markets Authority, two very official and non-partisan bodies, have said this will badly affect KiwiSavers. And then, of course, all hell broke loose. You may have seen the headlines, things like, tax grab, $103 billion KiwiSaver tax grab. (laughs) That got everyone's attention. And within a day, the government had to backtrack, U-turn, do a backflip, essentially pull it off the table. This was not only embarrassing, it was a massive blow for the government's credibility when it comes to little tweaks in the tax system. So, come Wednesday afternoon, I turned up at Parliament to have a listen to a press conference, a quite chaotic press conference, where David Parker had to front as the Revenue Minister and explain what he had actually done because there was a lot of disbelief about how quickly the government had backflipped. Have a listen to this 
slightly chaotic press conference that I was in. Thinking with the KiwiSaver tax. Uh, well, it wasn't a tax on KiwiSaver. That's been terribly misreported by the media already. It was a proposal to even up uh, GST on fees paid by uh, paid to KiwiSaver providers. Uh, current. But, but why? Why the U-turn? Uh, we were expecting some of the smaller uh, fund managers to support this. Uh, none of them have been. The clarion call against it risks undermining public confidence in KiwiSaver, including misrepresentations that this was a tax on KiwiSaver contributions or their returns, which it never was. But we weren't willing to put KiwiSaver on. Just, just this morning, you were on Morning Report defending this policy. Was your political antenna just completely wrong on this? <laughs> Um, uh, we were expecting support from some of the smaller KiwiSaver and other fund providers uh, who already pay GST or return GST on the fees that they charge to their members. Uh, that hasn't been apparent, and so we're not willing to fight that fight. What about the public? So he's not willing to fight the fight because some of the people he thought would come out in favour of it didn't come out in favour of it. And some people who really don't want it came out against it. So David Parker is in trouble. He has accidentally exposed a big hole in the tax system, one that people realise is a problem for KiwiSavers. And remember, there's 2 million New Zealanders who are KiwiSavers and they love it. And the idea that the government is going to take some money off them, billions of dollars potentially over the long run, is not very attractive. So what do you do? Well, you start to throw the blame around. You start throwing people under the bus. And as we're about to hear, David Parker started by blaming the IRD for giving him bad advice. Then he blamed the media for misrepresenting the policy. Here's what being thrown under the bus in a press conference sounds like. Well, one of the headlines in one of the major newspapers said that this was a tax on KiwiSaver. So it gave people the impression that their KiwiSaver savings were going to be subject to GST, which was never the case. Now, we are, we are the parents of KiwiSaver. It's the other side that have undermined it by withdrawing tax credits and subsidies for fees, etc. Ah, so he's blaming the opposition and the media and... Here we go. He's about to blame some other big institutions. Have a listen to this. Did you read the room wrong? Beg your pardon? Did you read the room wrong? Uh, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised at how well um, banks defend their profits. They're the donors of the big KiwiSaver firms. So you're blaming journalists and banks? You can't blame the media, can you? Because it's your job to sell your own policy. Uh, I can blame the media in respect of misrepresentative headlines which suggested that GST was going to be charged on KiwiSaver contributions and the funds that people had. So do you reject the financial market? authority estimate that it would um, reduce total savings by 2070 by 180 billion total? If they've made no allowance for what would be the competitive response in an increasingly competitive KiwiSaver market. So you were seriously thinking that the fees would not be passed on? Uh, well, in respect of uh, some, some KiwiSaver providers, we were certain that that was the case because they already charged GST on all of their fees. Ah, so some of them were doing it and the rest would follow into line and everything would be fine and that consumers would not have to pay. Well, we've we've seen that uh, rodeo before and that's not actually <laughs> how it works. And to be fair, the IRD and the FMA were also advising the government. So 
What a mess. What is he talking about when he says that some people were already being charged GST and this was just a, a minor clarification of the rules? Well, he's sort of right, actually. But because the numbers are so big, it was still wrong. So at the moment, when people put their money with a fund manager, they receive a service as well as a return on their investment. Now, the service is hopefully independent financial advice, which is useful to people when they're thinking about where to put their money. So someone will take you aside, maybe it's on the phone, maybe it's in an office, and say, here's your options, here's the service I provide. It's a financial service. Normally, they're charged by the hour, and they would have to charge GST on that. But then there's a bunch of other fund managers who don't charge GST. They just simply weave it into the returns you get and the fund management fee that you pay for the funds management service. And this is important because in New Zealand, everything pays GST, all the food, all the vegetables, but financial services and residential rents don't. This goes back to the initial creation of GST in the mid-1980s. And this week on When the Facts Change, we're going to go back in history and explain how GST was created, how it was part of a wider rejig of the tax system that was going to be much cleaner and fairer, and that would include a capital gains tax. But that one thing, that capital gains tax, wasn't included. And in the process, we've changed New Zealand. This is what this episode of When the Facts Change is all about. We're going to talk to Terry Boucher, who is an expert in not just tax, he's involved, but he's written books about tax history and understands how all of the different parts of the tax system work together and knows where the bodies are buried, where the hole is, and how this attempt to extend GST shows how big the hole is, and how much of a problem it is for everyone in our society. That's this week on When the Facts Change. Welcome to Terry Boucher, who is a tax expert and practitioner, thinks a lot about tax. Welcome to When the Facts Change, Terry. Kia ora, Bernard. Thanks for inviting me. Very exciting times in the tax world. This week, the government just quietly tried to um, clear up a few technical issues on applying GST to fund managers' fees, and then the whole world blew up. And within a day, the government had backtracked on it. What were your thoughts on on the kerfuffle this week? Well, you know, the old saying "order counter order disorder" comes to mind. You know, it caused a certain amount of confusion um, around the matter. That there is a there is reasonable technical grounds for what was proposed, but it certainly was an eye-opening sum that they thought that would be the result of it, $225 million starting in three years' time. So naturally that got everyone's attention because it would impact KiwiSavers. Someone had done projections way out to uh, 2070 and totted them up and then you get a very, very big number. So no wonder everyone went, wow. A lot of confusion, it seemed. People seemed to be thinking that GST was being applied to the savings and not the management fee. That's right. So I was keen to try to unpack some of this and explain what was going on here. And in the process, give people a a clearer view of how our tax system works uh, well in some cases and not at all in others. Um, Could you tell us some of the sort of history and thinking behind GST applied 
across all sorts of goods and services, but excluding just a couple of things. Could you talk about that? GST originates from the European Union, as it is now, or the old EEC, European Economic Community, back in the 50s as a transactional tax. And it's called value-added tax there. And it applies on sales of goods and services. And broadly speaking, we adopted it as part of the tax reforms in the 1980s. We introduced it with effect from 1st of October 1986. And we went for... As part of the home philosophy at that time was, across all taxes, was we're driving towards a broad base, low rate. So we broaden the base of taxation and lower the rate. And so GST is the perfect concept of it in action. It's a very, very broad base. And it started at 10%, went to 12.5% very quickly, and then 10 years ago went up to um, 15% where it stayed. For comparison, by the way, VAT rates in Europe are sometimes as high as 20-25%. But as part of it, some things were excluded, some things were brought in. We do food, as everyone well aware, if other countries don't. But financial services were one of the areas which were excluded. And that's still the case in the EU, largely, although Luxembourg, as you pointed out this morning, is one of those charges on some financial services. And the reason that wasn't done is that what are we talking about here? Are we talking about, um, for example, interest payments? Are we talking about GC and interest payments, mortgage payments, etc.? And so that was seen to be a step too far. Very difficult to define what services provide, what would be the value. And so back in when GST was designed, financial services and um, rent, for example, and it was another example, was taken out of the picture that said those are going to be GST exempt. Yeah, I've always been curious about that because what, what my understanding is that they were trying to separate goods and services consumed on the spot, if you like, from what you'd generally call assets or savings. And the idea that you could apply GST to a rent was in effect applying a tax to um, a service, that's right, from a house. But if you're going to do it fairly, you'd also have to apply GST to the service that someone got from their own home, uh, which made it really complicated and politically spicy. And then then there's the issue of applying GST to, um, uh, let's say, uh, interest payments, which in effect would be applying a, a tax on top of and a return on savings. In effect, you are paying the bank for the use of their money. You are effectively uh, applying a tax on a chunk of savings. And is that the reason why rent and financial services were sort of carved out to start with? Pretty much. It's very, very difficult to define those services. And as you say, you're effectively taxing savings. They didn't want to do that. And so they excluded those um, from the outset, and that's pretty common. By the way, there needs to be a distinction drawn between GST exempt, which means it's completely outside um, the GST net, and zero rating for GST, which means that GST is charged, but it's 0% for exports, for example, of services. And that's quite important because that means that someone who is charging GST at a zero rate can recover their costs when people charge them GST, they can recover the GST. 
And so what I understand has happened is that over the years, as we've introduced KiwiSaver, the whole idea of providing a service as a financial advisor to someone who has invested their money in the KiwiSaver product that you're managing has allowed some managers to see the service they provide as a financial advisor as separate from the returns on the investment. And uh, this issue of funds management fees has created some confusion in that there were some fund managers who didn't apply GST to it because it was seen as a financial service. And there were, there were others that did apply uh, GST to it because they saw it as um, a separate product. I mean, ha- how is this whole area of insurances, funds management advice, and and also, you know, independent financial advice, you know, a, a charge per hour for my advice. How is that all handled under GST? That, that service you're providing a service is standard rated as we or subject to GST. So that that is not a financial service, that is a normal service and subject to the GST rules. Then the question comes down to this provision of financial services and whether it's exempt, fully exempt, or partly exempt. What developed about more than 20 years ago, there was an informal agreement, and that, by the way, predates the arrival of KiwiSaver. So probably at that time, the scale of the potential issue wasn't particularly, um, wasn't probably identified as as likely to be great. So about 20 years, more than 20 years ago, Inland Revenue and the financial service providers reached an agreement as to what an apportionment is. Quite, quite a lot of technical detail here. And they sort of said, right, there's going to be fully exempt, some will be fully exempt, which means management services were provided directly to a retirement scheme, which, so that would include KiwiSaver schemes. Then they decided that some group would be treated as 90% exempt. And basically, they would say, well, look, um, we are providing services which won't be subject to GST, but we only think when you look at it in context, 10% is the uh, subject to GST and the balance is exempt. So that, that practice apparently was applied by the larger retail managed funds and the wholesale funds. And that's what they supported and followed through. And then there's full GST, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. And apparently this has been carried done by the small number of boutique firms. Now, I think those boutique firms have come into the market over the last um, 20 years, with particularly since the advent of KiwiSaver, which, trans- as you know, transformed our savings um, markets and sort of probably made it more worthwhile for investors to be and, and providers to get involved in it. And so what's happened is that over time, various changes in practice have sort of stumbled over each other and um, the way that GST was changed. And we've got them, everyone's got into a bit of a pickle. The IRD thought, oh, here, here we, can, we can clear this up. We can have a much uh, more clean, broad, low base uh, process for GST. And in the process have... <laughs> have seen it described as a, a tax grab. Um, but one of the things I think it does is it shows uh, one of the flaws in the overall tax strategy that the government has, which is, yes, we love broad base and low rate. We've got a nice clean system for income tax. We've got a nice clean system for GST. 
But my understanding is that when this was initially dreamt up in the late 80s, the idea was that at some point there would also be a nice, clean and clear and simple system for taxing uh, capital gains and maybe even land. But in the process, that bit got left out. How do you see it? That was actually the subject of quite a bit of the book I co-wrote with um, Deborah Russell MP, Tax and Fairness, back in 2017. And I looked at extensively this issue of the taxation of capital gains and the reform process. Because New Zealand's reform process during the 80s was fascinating to watch and observe, coming from um, a system in the UK where just basically things happened and there wasn't a sort of tax policy process as we understand it. It was fascinating to see this open process uh, going on about how the system should be reformed and you know fundamental thinking of first principles of what we tax, how we tax it. And you know, reading all the reports, extensive or the massive intellectual work went in there. You know, we really are standing on the, on the shoulders of giants looking back on it. Um, the likes of Arthur Vallab uh, and the committee there. There was a very clear trend that all forms of economic income would should be taxed, and that included capital gains. The, the system was bedeviled. Was, there were two issues they were trying to deal with. One, how to do the tax on a realisation basis, which is how most capital gains tax work, or on an unrealised or accrual basis, which is the theory you pick it up each year. And, and that problem with dealing with that was very difficult to get definitions and, and timings around it, but it also was compounded by inflation through the 80s. And so what is the impact of inflation? So there's a lot of great thinking went into that. And David Cagle, who succeeded uh, Roger Douglas as finance minister, put out in late 80, 1989 a proposal for a formal capital gains tax, which, by the way, would have included the family home. There would have been some small exemption. But then I'm not sure what happened then. The politics probably got difficult. They were looking at an election later in 1990, which wasn't looking good for Labour. So the, the process got dropped and it was never followed through and picked up by the incoming national government. So that was the point at which we got to proposals and then stalled and fell away. And and what that's left is, is a system where uh, savings that go into pension funds are um, essentially the, the income that you earn and then put into the pension fund or the KiwiSaver fund is taxed as regular income on the way in and then you put it into the fund and it isn't taxed as it goes in. But then a, as it earns along the way, it um, generates tax on the dividends or maybe even the, 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 tr the capital gains that are registered as trading capital gains. And then as it comes out, when you withdraw it, you don't have to pay money on the money that you draw, withdraw out. Uh, however, overseas, this business of uh, giving you a tax break, if you like, when you put money into a savings vehicle, effectively um, the tax break is on the way in and sometimes the, um, the income as the fund is growing through the process isn't taxed and then it's taxed on the way out. Could you give us an explanation of, of how New Zealand came to its particular way of taxing savings in these fund vehicles and how the combination of that without a capital gains tax on residential land price appreciation has meant we've got this inherent 
bias, if you like, to investing in land as opposed to investing in pension funds that would put money into companies. What you described initially, how we we tax, we, we call it the tax-tax exempt approach. That is, we tax the, you, you make contributions to KiwiSaver out of after-tax income. The KiwiSaver fund is subject to normal rules and then the exempt on withdrawal. And that's the opposite of what's done elsewhere and what New Zealand used to do up until 1989, which is exempt. You get a deduction for contributing to a scheme. The schemes grow tax-free, but you're taxed on the way out. You sort of defer your tax payment on those uh, income is the approach. Theoretically, as part of that reform process we went through in the 1980s, it was trying to remove all sorts of distortions of encouraging people to invest in, in or sorry, distortions into savings and investment because of tax breaks. Uh, if you go back and read through the 80s, all sorts of things, film schemes, llamas, kiwi fruit orchards, all, all sorts of things went on um, at the time. And they were very tax-driven. So many llamas. Yes. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> and conceptually, I think they're right on that to say, let's remove those because then people make investments on investment grounds. I, I always tell clients, don't let the tax tail wag the dog. Invest on, make the decision, on an investment decision on investment grounds. The tax considerations are secondary. But people fixate on that. It's quite interesting to watch the psychology. So Douglas scrapped that. But he was also faced with a hole in, in the cost of providing that. It was about $600 million in 1988 terms, about probably well over $2 billion now, probably even higher. So to try and balance the books, he decided we're going to go to the tax-tax exempt approach. And so the superannuation schemes and life insurance um, the schemes, the tax relief was withdrawn with effect from start of 19, uh, 1st of April 1989, and we went into that system. But at the same time, shortly later, we, we abandoned the capital gains tax. Remember, in 1988, when he did that, we were conceptually moving towards a capital gains tax, but then we didn't follow through on that. But tax treatment had changed for superannuation schemes and all their uh, life and life insurance. So their income was being taxed at 33%, that being the corporate tax rate at the time, or trust rate, actually, because they're in trusts. So that starts to, you can see straight away, you see, and I, I track it in, the, in my book, you see the fall away in the number of superannuation schemes, and you start to see a movement towards investing in residential property. Then in 1991, there was a $10,000 limit on the amount you could um, offset against other uh, income from losses from property. That was removed. You have the introduction of the qualifying company regime, which also, and, and loss attributing qualifying company regime. The combination of those together made investing in property very attractive. You could leverage up, get a deduction for the interest, offset it against your income, and away you went. And the tax, and as long as you weren't clearly purchasing for the purpose or intent of sale or trading in properties, the gains would be largely tax-free. So that's how it all kicked off. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. 
We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25-26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. So what you're saying is that the system looked absolutely perfect and would have been if they'd just managed to put that last building block in place, which was the capital gains tax. Then it would have been effectively much fairer and you wouldn't have had an effective uh, tax break for putting money into land versus putting money into a pension fund. And the, the it looked like a fair way to do it, to remove the tax break for pension funds And it would have been fine if only they'd put in the capital gains tax in place. Yes, that's the way I look at it. And I'll probably be criticised for taking a simplistic view from it. But then I come from a capital gains tax jurisdiction. So I sort of grew up with it. So I never see it as this um, devil that, um, you know, the the end of investment. There seems (laughs) to be quite a lot of emotion around it. Other jurisdictions, America, Britain, Australia, Canada, all our contemporaries have all got capital gains tax. And you can't say that, look at those countries and say, capital gains tax has stifled investment, because that's not the case. But that was the argument. I do think one point making, there was another reason that did drive investment towards property. And that would be the aftermath of the stock market crash, the 87 crash. Because the crash here was catastrophic, utterly catastrophic. It is really hard to understand, to express just how catastrophic the loss in confidence and the amount of value that was wiped out. I think the NZX50 index, the index we use now, is a different, is a gross index. It includes reinvested dividends. The previous index, the Barclays index, was just capital. And my understanding is the it did not recover its pre-1987 crash highs until 2011, something like that, or even later. So 
24 years of going nowhere. So people would be suspicious of investing in the stock market. And I don't think the the government response or the people in charge of the stock exchange at the time actually helped matters either. They seemed to think that investors were, retail investors were not really worth bothering with. So we've sort of got ourselves into a pickle now where we've got this almost perfect tax system, but that it's now so uh, skewed by the missing link of the capital gains tax that we're having to do all sorts of um, funny and slightly messy things to try and achieve our aims because we can't put that final block of the system in place. How then do we sort of get around this problem? How do we make it much fairer again so that capital gains are taxed and that it is a fair system uh, in a way that's broad base and low rate? What's your view? Um, how long have we got? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's time for an honest discussion about this. I, I think compromising the discussion around this is there's a lot of self-interest at play. Um, there are people like the current system. They like the fact they get generate quite substantial amounts of tax-free capital gains, and they prefer to keep it that way. And that obscures the debate uh, around the matter. Um, we also really, if we're saying... If you're not happy about the 39% tax rate, and the then what could be the rate if we did broaden our base? What would be the effect of bringing capital into um, taxation of capital into this tax system? The tax working group was comfortable with working at 33% top rate and making substantial adjustments to, to lower incomes and thresholds to with the addition of a capital gains tax. That's what we're missing out on. The, it's quite interesting to me the debate said, oh, this is terrible, capital gains being taxed. But the consequence of not following through with the proposals of the tax working group in 2019 is that lower income earners didn't get tax breaks. So you could argue, as you've done already, Bernard, in, um, with the, what happened in the wake of the COVID response, that there's been another trend. That was a transfer from the poor to the wealthy. So it's, it's tackling self-interest, and that's never very easy. That's oftentimes a revolution is where they'd get at the point of a gun that things like that happen, which is very dark. It's taking us into dark territories. But, but there is a point where you, I sense the system is so really creaking very heavily at the strains. The, we, we have the bright line test is now 10 years. That's a de facto capital gains tax. And that's not really what the bright line test, which really initiate two years, was addressing some of the churn we could see happening um, there. Now at 10 years, it's a de facto capital gains tax. And, and if I talk to colleagues overseas, I realize I have to set out that there are probably five or six different taxing regimes dependent on the type of asset we're talking about. That's how complex <laughs> our system has become around taxation of capital and savings. So how could we find ourselves that last building block, which was broad base and low rate, and that started to tax some of the, the gains, particularly on residential land values, which have been absolutely extraordinary over the last 20 years, section prices rising 600 700% or so. How would you tax that? Professor Susan St. John and I have worked on what we call a fair economic return, and that is we would be taxing residential property on the basis of a deemed return. And we'd say, you've got a million-dollar exemption, and if the net value of your uh, equity and 
residential property was above that, then we'd apply a percentage that would be uh, to that and deem it as income. So that broadens the base straight away. It brings potentially $1.5 trillion into the tax base. And you don't need to be taxing some of that size. You don't need to be applying massive sums of money to. Land value tax, which you suggest, are the same. They're working on the same principles. We're broadening the base as far as possible. And uh, we deal with very large sums of money. So therefore, the the ability to keep the tax rate low is is potential is still there, and um, and so you'd have a deemed rate of return, or you could have a a tax on the the net value, the net value. So say someone owned I mean, several people may own they have a house in Auckland and a bat shop at Mangafai, and uh, and between them they're worth three million dollars. You've got a million dollar exemption, and you'd say you'd apply and. It's all that's the net equity is two million dollars. You'd apply say one percent to that, and there's um, twenty thousand dollars. And and this would apply whether or not it was a business asset or um, uh, a, an asset that you owned personally. It did, did, would 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 not apply to business assets. We're talking about at the moment the the fair economic return proposal that Susan St John and I have is on fixed on residential property. You could apply it to commercial property because commercial property has significant, has done well in capital growth as well. But the same principle would be there. Now, one of the things we, you note that we said, a, a talked about an amount being non-taxable. We wanted to get away from the definitional issues, which keep people like myself in plenty of work, around what is the principal <laughs> private residence, et cetera. If you just simply say, here's a sum, how much property we got, deduct that sum, the balance is then subject to the charge that we whatever that's worked out as. And so that's one way to one way to do it. Um, and it, it really would uh, close that that yawning gap that's opened up in our system. Terry Boucher, uh, who is a, a tax expert and an author of uh, books about uh, tax, uh, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Kira, thanks, Bernard. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.